Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Eddie Caparucci. He's a licensed therapist and is certified in the treatment of sexual and pornographic addiction. He and his wife, Terry, have a private practice in Marietta, Georgia, working with men struggling with sex and porn addiction, as well as their wives who are dealing with betrayal. Among his many clients, Eddie has worked with professional athletes, including NFL and Major League Baseball players and television personalities. He is the administrator for websites menagainstporn.org and sexuallypuremen.com. He serves as the clinical director for the National Decency Coalition and organization working to help limit the access of pornography to minors while educating about the harmful impact of pornography on individuals' relationships and society. So in this episode, obviously, this is going to be all about porn addiction, all about sex addiction, but specifically, it is going to be looking at these things through the lens of the inner child. And so one of the things that Eddie does really well, in my opinion, through his work is he takes a look at how our, our inner child, our, um, our childhood oftentimes forms these behaviors, these addictions, whether it's through neglect, whether it is through abuse or trauma or abandonment wounds or attachment issues. And he has created nine different archetypes that are in his book um, that we discuss, which is wonderful. And he's able to sort of disseminate and break down why it is that we as men can sometimes get caught in this very addictive behavior with pornography specifically. So if you know of anyone that has been um, navigating their relationship to porn, whether they classify themselves as an addict or if you're just somebody that is wanting to um, stop watching porn and you know take a break from that, this episode is going to be very informative um, and give some really good insight into some of the some of the core um, psychological, emotional wounds that have um, maybe preceded the the use of porn and the way in which it shows up in your life. So don't hesitate to share this episode. This is some really valuable information. Um, Eddie does come from um, a a background, um, a very sort of a Christian background, and he shares a little bit about his journey in, in the very beginning of the episode. Um, but the rest of the episode, outside of his personal story, is free of the religious context, which I think is important on both ends, right? I think it's important that we have these conversations um, with, or you know, with people who that who are from every walk of life and have every sort of belief. Um, system. I think that's incredibly important, but also that we have these conversations about childhood, uh, the inner child and inner child work and um, things like porn addiction, sex, sex addiction, um, free of religion. And sometimes that can be very challenging because a lot of the frameworks that are out there can be very um, steeped in and marred by uh, religious frameworks and expectations. And I think Eddie does a good job of being able to share his personal experience while keeping the the sort of quote-unquote work free from his personal religious belief. So, all right, here we go. This is a great episode. Um, I hope that you enjoy and take notes. And without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Eddie 
Caparucci. Thank you for having me. It's great. I'm, I'm really excited to be talking to you and, and to your audience. Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, uh, quite a few people have sent me your work, and I think that it's something that is much needed. And it's, I think it's a conversation that uh, I've had a, a few conversations on the show around the inner child, around porn addiction, but I don't think I've had a conversation that has sort of bridged the, those two veins. And so I'm looking forward to diving into this. I know this is going to be helpful for a lot of the listeners that, uh, that tune into the show. So let's, before we dive into that, I have to ask you the question that I ask all my guests, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. A defining moment in my life. Um, very easy to tell you. We, I, was, I spent 25 years in the marketing and advertising world, corporate America, and um, I was recruited for a job in Atlanta. I from New Jersey. I worked up there in New York and New Jersey for some major ad agencies. And I was recruited to come down to Atlanta. And I did, my wife and I, and our two children. And my wife said, you know what, I want to try a different kind of church. I want to go to a different church. And so I said, that's fine. We used to go to a Catholic church. And I said, that's fine. So we went to a Presbyterian church. And I sat in the pew. And the first time I heard somebody say, what it's all about is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I thought he was out of his mind. It's hard enough to have a relationship with people like you, Connor, when we have to talk and engage. How do you do that with something I can't see or feel or touch? And, but that began, just to make the long stories very short, that began this quest for me of knowledge of what is this about? What did it mean? And what I found is that it filled the void that was in my heart that I've had my entire life. And with that, over time, as I grew in my faith and as I developed that relationship, he then comes knocking on my door to say, hey, I got something different for you because I don't want you in corporate America anymore. And I didn't like that at all. Uh, I liked what I did. I really enjoyed all of it. And I bought him for a couple of years and then finally just succumbed and went back to college, got another master's degree, did all the state work to get become licensed and become a, a counselor. And now here we are 10 years later uh, with a thriving practice, a, a ministry that he has set up that I never thought would ever be the people that we've been able to help, my wife and I, because we're in ministry together. It's just, I, we get to watch God at work every day. So that that's my defining moment. Wonderful. Wonderful. I appreciate you sharing that with us. I think it's, I mean, it's interesting. This is a very different uh, sort of pathway. and we won't, we won't necessarily go down it. But I think what's interesting is that I hear a lot of people come into different forms of healing modalities through um, some form of spiritual connection, and I think, or spiritual awakening. And what I find interesting is that we live in a time of great spiritual bankruptcy within our cultures, globally almost, uh, but certainly within Western culture. Anyway, I just, you know, I just dropped that in there to to say I think it's it's um, appropriate and I think it's wonderful for, that you shared that because I think in many cases, people have 
their own version of a spiritual awakening, um, yeah. whatever that might look like, right? Whether it's whether it's coming to Christ or however they find their way to God. And it, it, what's funny is that that those conversations have almost um, vacated our n- normal and everyday conversations. And I think it's coming back and, you know, I think new age spirituality has sort of <laughs> maybe thrust that back into some, uh, some of the mainstream conversations of people of, you know, younger generations and my generation. But, you know, I think that these are the conversations that we could have more of, because I think that it's not a case of needing less conversations about God and spirituality, but having more of them. And getting uncomfortable, you know, with with some of those. So, so I appreciate you sharing that, and um, it's wonderful to hear how that sort of changed your path and changed your course. Uh, uh, I love so, I love telling that story because I hope that it's inspiring to other people. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's what's interesting is that when you look at or when I look at the the works of people like Carl Jung, I mean, he has very significant spiritual undertones that are a part of his that are a part of his work. You know, a lot of his work was about finding God. And I, I was listening to a book by Russell Brandt yesterday mm-hmm. uh, called Revelation, and he was talking about how um, the foundations of AA had actually been entrenched in Carl Jung's work. And I think what was interesting was that it came, it sort of stemmed from a client who was working with Jung, who was a really severe alcoholic. And basically, Jung told him that he needed to have a spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he was like, he basically told him that he needed to find God and that, you know, that therapy and wasn't necessarily going to support him. And so um, I, I found that, you know, really um really really interesting but mm. let's let's come back into the conversation of the inner child let's let's start to just dig into some of this because i find your work to be fascinating so maybe just for the sake of setting some groundwork and framework for our listeners how would you define the inner child because i think this term gets put out a lot and a lot of people that you know follow therapeutic accounts and personal development accounts online see this term being used a lot but maybe don't have a more robust definition for what it means so can you just unpack that define that a little bit for us yes i'll I'll talk to you about it from my perspective because if you go and you do inner child research and looking at the various theories that line up they're all somewhat different uh for me the inner child is that hub is that central warehouse of our unresolved childhood pain points that kid is locked in a time warp of going back whether the age is four through 16 whatever it may be and what he has yet this storage unit and in that storage unit are all the different pain points that we endured growing up now not all of them have to be tragic things like sexual or abuse or bullying you know what it could be if more along the lines of neglect where no one taught us you know how to deal with our emotional pain or, or taught us about how to be empathetic to others and different things like that. Uh, there was nobody there to listen to our hurts as we were going along the way. So with all of that, you know, for me, that inner child is again that hub that we, that he is activated today 
when things happen in our world that he can correlate with something from our path. So it's like two worlds collide. This negative event happened today. He jumps into the storage unit and pulls out something that he thinks looks very much like this. And now our mood shifts and changes. Hmm. Yeah. So, so the inner child is, is us from our past and it is a sort of amalgamation or um, bringing together of past experiences where we had to protect ourselves. Um, I'm assuming the joy and love and happiness of, of our past also fits into our inner child in some capacities. Absolutely. Um, but I think specifically for our conversation today, it's the, the mechanisms and the methods and the uh, procedures that we put into place as children to safeguard ourselves or protect ourselves from some external stimulus that mm -hmm. was meant to hurt us, whether that's neglect or abandonment or some form of abuse or not belonging in some capacity. Is that roughly accurate or would you add anything to that? That is, that is accurate. And to your point, you know, from a positive standpoint, yes, the kid also pulls out things in the warehouse and storage unit that match up with us. So let's say, for example, you know, you're, you are celebrating, you know, your son or daughter's birthday. And it's like they're 10 or whatever. And big group of friends are over there. And the kid goes in a storage unit and you remember that birthday you had. So now your emotions actually intensify, you know, because it's not just the fact that you're celebrating this, but for some reason, even if you're not aware of what it was like. You don't have the memory. All of a sudden, it's just more of an euphoria for what's going on because he's excited within us. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's a really good, a really good addition into there. Um, I am curious. I mean, it's it, what's, what's interesting. I don't know. The listeners can't see this, but uh, this is a little photo that I keep on my desk of myself as a as a kid, um, this is, and the listeners can't see it right now, but I have a photo of me on my desk from when I was probably three or four. And, uh, I had just gotten finished, um, playing in the dirt as I love to do as a child. And I, I love to just go and dig in the backyard and, you know, not really wear clothes. <laughs> I was a bit of a savage. And, uh, and so I, would, I came back in this particular occasion and my parents decided to give me a bath in a pot, like a, you know, just like a big cooking pot. Um, and so there's a little picture of me and I got a bandage on my knees. You know, it, it reminds me of that inner child who was, uh, you know, innocent and joyful and free. Um, and so I think. Connecting... Now, there are, now, you know what, Connor, though, there are many kids who did exactly what you did. They went and played in the dirt. But instead of having parents say, hey, let's find this pot and put them in and clean them up and love on him, they sat there and they scolded them mm -hmm. and they humiliated them and maybe they even spanked them or punished them. And therefore, they have these horrible memories about that. And you're like, you know what? I don't even want to go out in the garden. I don't even want to dig anything. I don't want to do any of that kind of stuff. You had an opportunity where parents saw something like that and nurtured it. Mm. But there are many other people who they don't do that. They don't yeah. nurture. Yeah. Well, I had many of those other moments too, which we'll, we'll maybe we'll Not get sure into. You have. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. And so tell me about the intersection between the inner child and porn addiction and sex addiction. And maybe we can just define those things first as well. Like, yes. what, what do you constitute as a porn addiction, as a sex addiction? Because again, right. these things get thrown around a lot. I think 
there are many men that I've encountered that have a lot of resistance towards the mm-hmm. idea that pornography or sex can be an addiction. And so, um, yeah, so I'd love to get your your take on that. How do you define those things? It becomes an addiction when it winds up causing havoc in other areas of your life. That's when it becomes an addiction. For the man who looks at porn once you know, a month or something like that, I mean, or once every so a couple of times a month, that is not an addiction. I mean, we still would rather it doesn't happen because there's just a lot of things that are not healthy about pornography. But the person who is having racing sexual thoughts throughout the day, who can't wait to get home or get out on his phone to see what is updated on those websites, uh, who will take risks, they'll do risky behavior from a sexual standpoint, and therefore maybe have unprotected sex with strangers that they meet on, you know, an app such as Tinder. You know, that's when you now have an addictive uh behavior that's going on because it's gonna impact it could impact your work could impact your relationship, could impact financially. There are some people who spend tens of thousands of dollars on sex, whether it be through video streaming and things like that, or, you know, escorts and such. So it is, it winds up taking a toll on yourself and then also the people that you love. Mm-hmm. That is when we're looking at it and saying, this is an addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me in my own life where I noticed this behavior, this addiction showing up was often, it was when I was sort of sacrificing my own, how, how would I word this? It was almost like I had no control over it. You know, it's like I had to go watch porn. I had to find someone to to engage in sex with and like it the behavior sort of took over much like what a you know an alcoholic would say about i had to have a drink or a heroin addict would say i had to go shoot up it just wasn't a choice and i think in many ways that's where um you know for some men i think it's challenging because what they their usage of porn is like, oh, I watch it once or twice a month. It's not really a big deal. It's not a problem for me. So I can't see how it's how it could be an issue for other men. Whereas for other men, it's a daily occurrence. They're watching it for hours at a time, or they're watching it, you know, several times a day. Like you said, they're spending thousands of dollars on it. Um, and it and it truly is uh, entering into the realm of addiction. Is there can you say a little bit about just moving into this intersection between the inner child and um, and this addiction, whether it's porn or mm-hmm. sex, where does the link come in? Obviously, you know, I think conceptually we can understand that being neglected in our childhood or or being abused in our childhood, sexually abused, would would lead to something like maybe um, a porn addiction or sex addiction, but. What are some of the parameters of this inner child work that leads to this? Well, I'm going to go back to what you were just saying before in your case, how all of a sudden you just felt this need to go and look at porn or a need to go and be sexual someone else. That's where the inner child comes in. Because for me, if we look at any addiction, I believe addictions are based on unresolved childhood pain points. And what happened is we've learned somehow 
to soothe ourselves through these addictive behaviors. They serve as a distraction so that I don't have to think about what's going wrong in my life. So, you know, you get a kid who, let's say he is being bullied, you know, and he tries to come home to talk to, you know, his father about it. And instead of the father, you know, embracing, saying, hey, look, I know this is something that happened to a lot of kids. Let me walk you through some strategies on how to deal with it. Instead, it, you know, you get a father who gets angry. Like, why would you allow kids to push you around? What's wrong with you? You know, and just berate them. The kid, now the pain that he had, that he's sitting with, is now intensified. Because the place I went for to try to get soothing wasn't there. So now this kid who won, he doesn't have a whole lot of worldly experiences. And two, all of the cognitive thinking abilities aren't fully developed yet. So he's more emotionally based in his thinking. That, that, well, I'm pointing here because that comes the amygdala, that, you know, it's the storage unit of where our emotional pain and pleasure is. Um, he wondered, what do I do with this pain? So he comes up with just one rational, you know, uh, behavior to deal with it. I won't think about it. I won't think about it. So what do you do? Uh, maybe it's too much food. Maybe it's too much TV. Maybe it's too much fantasy of thinking about, you know, a sports person I am or who I'm going to be. And therefore, they learn not to deal with their emotional pain. Mm. Somewhere along the line, they stumble across sex and they realize, oh, my gosh, this is like the ultimate distraction. This is like the mother of all distraction. And now they dive into that. And so the inner child, what happens is anytime there's a negative event that occurs in that child's life, okay, so therefore if he's still enduring the bullying at school, when he comes home, he wants to go off and hide. And he will if he, he'll use masturbation and pornography to be able to do that. Or he may turn to drugs. He may start sniffing glue, you know, and, or, or he may wind up smoking pot, smoking cigarettes, spending way too much time in his video game. It's all to distract from the emotional pain that they, we don't know how to deal with. He, the inner child runs the show. Mm. So therefore, he goes and says... I want to run away. The inner child wants one thing. He wants comfort. He wants comfort. And he wants it at any cost. So therefore, it becomes this idea that, okay, something negative happened. It maybe it wasn't even that big a deal, but then we still notice our mood is changing because our child's been activated. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, hmm, I wonder what's on the phone. I wonder if there's been an update on that app at all. And you just mindlessly go there. And again, he runs the show. In my program, what I do is we take back control from the inner child and we start to run the show. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is that what I hear you saying is that our, our, our inner child learns how to cope in some ways, learns how to regulate its system or soothe itself when they're when when we're in distress as kids you know whether that's because we've been left alone or we're you know we're, we've been abandoned or neglected or or there's abuse or there's you know yelling happening in the house and we don't know how to deal with it 
um, and we and we turn towards these mechanisms. And uh, you know, the, the, I think the question that came up for me immediately was: Are there specific or um, yeah, specific past wounds or or childhood wounds that that regularly lead to these types of addictions? Yes, and actually, there are under nine that I've identified. Uh, and what I do is I refer to them as different children. And I'll just run through them briefly with you. Uh, one is the bored child. Okay, he was a kid who grew up in an environment that offered very little in the way of positive interaction with family members or, um, you know, peers and friends. They grew up feeling very isolated and alone. And so, therefore, they really are always seeking some sort of high level of stimulation. Then there's the unaffirmed child. The unaffirmed child grew up with a lot of criticism or, you know, didn't receive much in the way of praise. So, therefore, their desire is to be affirmed. The unnoticed child is a child who never really felt they belonged. They weren't chased by other people. So, for them... No, they always feel like on their outside looking in. So their desire is to achieve, to, uh, achieve attention from other people. Uh, the emotionally voided child, these are the folks who don't know how to emotionally connect and engage. And, but yet at the heart of all these addictions, that is where you find true recovery. When you learn to emotionally connect with other people, because that's the link, that's the thing that we're missing, that we want so much in our lives. So that's what they're chasing. They're chasing that emotional connection. There's the need for control, that need for control child. They grew up in a very hectic environment. Um, and therefore, you know, what they claim to realize is if I have control, I could prevent bad things from happening. Now, that's not true, but that's what they thought because when they're younger, they had no control and bad things would happen to them. So therefore, for them, it's the whole focus is seeking control. If things are out of control and they can't fix it, they will run to something sexual in order to soothe themselves. Then you have the entitled child. The entitled child, again, the kids who felt devalued as teenagers and as kids. Uh, they may have felt very uh, unjustly accused many times. So therefore, they turned to sex as a reward. I deserve this in my life. And again, what they're looking for is they just want to feel valued. These are three more children. One is the inferior slash weak child. Uh, and they were conditioned to feel this way, but whether it be by their parents, their siblings, their peers. So therefore, they use sex to, one, either feel empowered or to reinforce the sense in them that they are weak or inferior. And then there's the stress child, individuals, again, who grew up in an environment that was very chaotic, that may have had neglect or abuse, uh, trauma of some kind. And therefore, what they do anytime, they use sex as a stress buster. And then finally, the last one are the children who were um, early exposed, exposed to sex at a very early age. 
whether they stumbled across pornography or actually saw people having sex, as those who were sexually abused. And for them, what it does, it distorts their view of sex. And there are many ramifications that play out in that one. So those are the nine different uh, wounds that I have come to see over the years that I developed into the different kids. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, I, and I guess the question uh, that sort of sprung up while I was listening to you is, is can you have multiples of those? Because I think I was listening to that and I was like, yeah, check that one, check that one, check that one. So I felt like I sort of checked off a few boxes and I could hear my listeners being like, well, I, I definitely... Yeah. It's, not, it's not unusual, not unusual for anyone to have anywhere between four and six. Okay. Okay. But see, the thing is, it's not the number of kids that's really important. What's important is understanding what are the core emotional triggers that activate that child. Mm. So with each child, you may identify two or three core emotional triggers. Like, uh, for example, the unnoticed child, you know, a, a core emotional trigger may be, I feel dismissed. So something happens and all of a sudden you feel like, oh, somebody dismissed me. Mm -hmm. The kid's activated. He goes back into the storage unit, pulls out something. I'll give you a quick little story example. Let's say you're about 10 and you decide, hey, I'm going to go down to Bobby's house to see if he wants to come out and play. So you go down there, you knock on the door, Bobby opens the door and there's Bobby with two of your other friends. And you're like, hey, what are you guys doing? He goes, ah, we're just hanging out. Like, oh, well, can I come in? No, my mom says I can't have anybody else in the house. And Bobby slammed the door in your face. And you go home and you're crying. You're upset. You think they're laughing at you. It's like, why don't they want me? You know, what did I do wrong? Well, let's suppose something happened today. Let's say you and a friend had a falling out. And, you know, one day you run into the friend on the street and you guys start talking. And then you say, you know what? Maybe we need to sit and talk about this. So, okay. So you're ready to have lunch. Well, the day lunch that you're supposed to have lunch about 40 minutes before you're about to head out to meet him, he calls and says, hey, look, something happened. Something come up. It's an emergency. I can't deal with this today. You know, I'll call you back and reschedule and just hangs up on you. And you're like, wow, that was okay. Pretty coarse. Well, while you're thinking that, your kid now is running into the storage unit and he's pulling out the Bobby thing. Now, you may not be thinking about that. That may not be top of mind for you. But all you know is that this bit of discomfort that you are feeling has now intensified because subconsciously the whole Bobby story is playing out. And the kid is correlating the two. The two worlds collide, the past and the present. And so now you're sitting here and you're like feeling such discomfort and all of a sudden it's like, okay, you know what? Yeah, I think I will go grab my phone. I think I will go on a, a you know, a porn site. Maybe I will, you know, see if I can hook up with somebody that I've known in the past. And that that's the correlation between the two of them. So again, to answer your question about the nine, yes, you could have multiple, but they're not the key thing. What's really key is what are the core emotional triggers? And usually by the time we get done 
you know, we start off with, we wind up with maybe 20 we have, but many of them are very similar. So then we weed them down and then you usually have anywhere from six to eight. And then what you all you, you need to do then at that point is memorize them mm. to memorize. Okay. So this way, this event happened. Hmm. Does this, would this you know, cause my kid to be activated? No, that's not true. Okay. I don't have to worry about it, but yes, it would. Okay. Let me address it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's incredibly important. I think in the work that that I've done with a lot of people and I've done on myself is finding those emotional triggers is wildly important. Like I remember, um, part of my own experience was coming into contact with an awareness of um, when I would feel neglected or criticized by a parent at, in my home environment is when I would run towards um, overeating. And so my, my very first addiction was actually food. And as a kid, I would hide food in the couch. I would, you know, gorge myself until I felt sick. Uh, and it's, what's interesting is that it took me a very long time to actually re to recognize that, to recognize that as my primary addiction. Cause that, that had been, you know, that had been with me since I was six or seven and I got praise for it. You know, I got a lot of compliment. you know, as a my label in the household was like the human um, uh, garbage disposal and I would eat everybody's food at the table. And so I got, a, it became a part of my identity in my teen years. But what was interesting is identifying that a lot of that overeating, a lot of the, the binge eating or the hiding the food or, you know, eating an unhealthy amount of food often came on the back of me feeling criticized by a parent or me feeling neglected um, by a parent and sort of putting those two things together and then seeing how that showed up in my in my everyday life. So can you maybe just give a little bit more insight because I can hear my listeners tuning into this conversation and all of a sudden being like, okay, how do I find these emotional triggers? Like, <laughs> how do I get to the root of these things? This sounds important. Right. So how do we start to unearth uh, and sort of mine for some of these emotional triggers? It's all about insight. Connor, what you just did as you sat there and you talked about, okay, you know what, what, why was I overeating as a, as a child? You know, what would have, what the pattern that occurred? So what we need to do, we need to go back and look at the path, which people don't want to do. Mm. <clears throat> we don't want to go and touch those raw nerves. Nobody wants to think that we want to, we want to believe we grew up in a happy family. And I will tell you, it is very interesting. A large majority of clients who come in to see me and one of the first questions I am, well, they tell me about your family of origin. And what I get is, oh, it was great. It was lovely. We did this, we did that. And they bring out all the, you know, wonderful memories. Um, and then later on, you find out, you know, well, yeah, dad, you know, worked 13 hours a day and, or maybe you had gone four days out of the week and mom was trying to raise five kids by herself and it was very daunting for her and she never really had time for people. And, you know, there was a sibling who was very abusive to everybody else. You find out all these other details that are there that they just kind of blew over. And then when they go in, they start looking at it and they realize, they say, oh my gosh, you know what? There was a sense of neglect. Now, you know what? Dad may have been off working because he had to do it. And that was it. It wasn't like he was a bad father. But when he came home, you're totally exhausted. So therefore, you just go and hang out on the couch or whatever and just ignore everybody. 
All right. Well, you know what? I'm sorry, Dad. You know, but that even though you're exhausted, you just got to find some sort of energy for everybody else, uh, you know, along the way. People don't want to deal with that. They don't want to paint their parent black. They don't want to sit there and say, ooh, they're bad people. Okay. <clears throat> because, you know, the thing is, they feel like, you know, I, I want, I need my parents. I needed them as kids. So therefore we turn inward and we say, okay, there might be something wrong with me. Something wrong with me that my dad doesn't want to, you know, pay attention to me when he gets home. So we turn it inward to ourselves. So we need to go through and do those assessments. And what I do in my book is I have each chapter about each of the nine kids. Uh, I give different examples of what may have happened in those environments. And then what I have is a list of core emotional triggers that could relate to that child. Now, that's only a short list. There could be others. People have to, again, it, again, insight. It's all about insight. Why do I think, feel, and do what I do? And that what gets us to identify what those core emotional triggers are. But as I said, in the book, there are listing for each of the children that they can go to that would help them. Yeah, I think what's interesting is, is I think in many ways, the, the work here is confronting, you know, because I think if you had told me a decade ago, um, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe a dozen years ago, 12 years ago, um, when I was sort of in the throes of this, if you had told me that part of my work was going to need to be to looking at my inner child and and to root around in my childhood, I'd have been like, why? My problems are here. They're right now. You know, like I'm facing the problems right now. They need to be fixed uh, right now. I don't want to look in the past. And so how do you how do you face that? Because I imagine that some of the guys that that come in and some of the women that come in have an aversion to wanting to look towards the past. So how do you, as a as a specialist, navigate some of those concerns and worries, or is it just a very direct approach of like this is the path, or this is the the path that I teach? Well, what well, part of, part of it is education to real to to say yes, you know what these are your current problems. But the reason the problems exist today is because your past childhood pain points are still haunting you. You just don't know it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring them to light so that you can see them, have control over them, and be able to deal with them in a healthy way so that these problems that you want to alleviate will diminish and you will be able to manage them in a very healthy way. And when people hear that message, it's like, oh, okay, you know what? That That's something that's of interest to me. And then I add the inner child, and I say him. That's the source of what causes your pain today. And what we need to do is be able to comfort this kid. And now they're like, oh, uh, you know what? I can do that. I can comfort him. I, that's something I can do versus some abstract thing of, okay, we need to figure out how we're going to break this cycle of addiction that you have. And you just have to be a little bit more aware of it and, you know, snap a band on your, you know, on your wrist and whatever. <clears throat> Those things don't work. 
here it's like, oh, wait a minute. So when I get these urges or temptation, I have to refer to my inner child. I have a place I can go. So I can sit there and say, okay, kid, what's going on? What's wrong? Why, why are you activated today? Mm. So that, as they start to see that process unfold, and, you know, if you think about it, Connor, what have I done? I've just taken the addiction and I externalized it. It's not you. And therefore, what that does, that also moves us away from another very strong obstacle, and that's shame, the shame we feel. Mm. But now, instead, here, this is the problem. This is the issue. Not you. It's this. Of course, it is you. I mean, that's the inner child, you. But here, this. And they look at him and say, oh, wow. So, you know, I got a client, you know, called Tom, little Tommy. Oh, I got to talk to little Tommy today. And that's what they talk about. That's what they come in. They say, oh, little Tommy, was, he was a handful this week. So, I mean, I don't even have to say, like, so tell me about your sobriety. What's it been like? They'll be like, oh, little Tommy, let me tell you. And they get out their journal and start walking me through the different scenarios of what happened. Then what did they do to help comfort little Tommy at that point? Yeah, I think I think what's interesting is that maybe I'll just again, I'll use my own personal adage here, which is I found that for me, starting to have those conversations and starting to see how my methods of self-regulating as an adult were very much identical to my methods of soothing myself as a child, right? Whether that was my loneliness, whether that was being criticized, whether that was, um, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever means it was, right? Whether it was the abuse or et cetera. And when I started to do that, when I started to connect those two dots together and say like, oh, how I'm trying to regulate today through porn, through food, through drugs, through whatever, whatever the means was, because I, I really tried them all, <laughs> I really tried all the methods of, <laughs> of addictive self-regulation, then I could start to see, oh, that's little me still floundering. You know, it's little me not having been pulled aside and taught and shown how to regulate himself as a child. And when I realized that, it created a little bit of space for me to say, oh, okay, I can teach him how to do that, mm -hmm. right? I can, and I call this in the work that we do, we call it fathering ourselves, right? I can, I can learn how to father myself. I can learn how to parent this little child within me. And so I would love for you to just speak to that a little bit of what are some of the ways in which you um, advocate for us learning how to parent ourselves. Like, how do we actually do that? Because yeah. I think for a lot of people, it's, it's a bit foreign. That, that is a great point that you bring up because the other thing that I find with most men, nine out of 10 men who deal with a pornography or a sexual addiction, they have what I call very low emotional IQ. Mm. Okay. They struggle to emotionally connect with people. It, it causes anxiety within them. So therefore they want to shut things down, try to fix the problem. They can't tell you what they really feel. They're very fearful of expressing it. So that part of what we're trying to do in learning, again, to father yourself, to parent, to be able to sit with the kid and say, okay, so what do I really feel right now? Okay, I know I feel, for most of it, I call what I call a muted discomfort. Hmm. It's a discomfort, but we have no idea what it really is. 
So we have to go deeper. And that's where we get the thing about the book, going deeper. Okay, so what do I really feel right now? And that is taking that time to just be quiet. Listen to the body. Slow everything down. My clients actually kind of make fun of me at times. They're like, we're going to slow everything down. Dr. Cappuccini, as <laughs> we're talking about different things, because it's really important. Slow down. Breathe. How am I doing? What am I feeling mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually? Am I drained in any of those areas? Because if I'm drained, bad things happen, because the brain is screaming for stimulation, and that's where I'm going to run off. So I need to sit. I need to be patient. I need to be quiet. Now, you know, now, now what one of the biggest problems we have here is these guys don't know how to sit still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're just constantly going, moving, running, unless they can zone out in front of a TV or a sporting event or something like that or their phone. But just to sit and do nothing is very difficult for many of them. And they have to learn that so that they can understand mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, what is going on? How am I? And then when they realize which area they're drained in, that when they go and they reach out for what I call the lifeline to bring in the good thing that will help replenish them. So therefore, if I'm physically not doing well, well, let me see, is it aches and pains that I need to address? Do I, do I need more sleep? You know, am I just feeling very sluggish? Am I not eating right? What What's happening there? You know, from an emotional standpoint, what, are, what do I feel and then what do I need? Maybe I need to listen to some uplifting music or to a comedy, watch a comedy movie or something like that along the line. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to identify, you know, what is going on within us Okay, and then being able to step out and go to the kid and say, all right, why are you feeling this level of muted discomfort? What do you need? Identifying that and then bringing the lifeline to replenish. Versus because before, sex and porn were the lifelines. Those were the ones we bring in. Well, no, we don't want to get rid of those. We want healthy lifelines now. Yeah, I, I love that term using the lifelines. Um, you know what what we're using to support ourselves because I think in many ways, you know, when I look in the past, when I felt stressed, when I felt lonely, when I felt overwhelmed, when I wanted to celebrate, when I felt like I had failed, the, in those moments is often when I would turn to porn or you know some some form of addictive behavior. Um, and, and I think it's in those moments where we as men have to learn how to curate a different form of a lifeline, you know, how to cultivate the skill of moving, sort of turning, not turning away, but moving away from these old patterns of how we've dealt with it and start to develop the skill set of self-regulation, you know, being able to regulate the self, regulate that, that child that wants to, you know, have a little conniption or, <laughs> you know, throw a tantrum or, <clears throat> or, or says, you know, I, I deserve this. I think a lot of the, a lot of guys that I work with, you know, who use porn, they use that phrase, you know, I just, des- I deserve this. It's like, I've, I've worked hard for this or I've, you know, I've 
worked hard today and so I need this release. And so rather than moving in that direction, finding something that isn't going to leave us feeling, um, you know, maybe disconnected uh, on the other side of that, which brings me to my, maybe one of my last questions, which is how does the role of intimacy play into this? Because I think in, in many ways, what I've seen is that oftentimes the inner child, the child at some point experienced a lack of closeness or an unhealthy kind of intimacy. And I was hoping that maybe you could just speak to that. Intimacy is going, is the antidote. Okay. When we create a strong bond with our partner, our spouse, with God, you know, or whatever you worship, that is going to be what fills the void that we've all have within us. So therefore, yes, the more we learn to emotionally engage and connect, but see, again, here it is. You have these barriers. Most of these folks don't know how to emotionally engage in and and connect. And we go back to what you were just saying before. A lot of the root of the problem is when we are young, nobody's teaching us how to regulate our moods, how to be attuned to other people's mood, mood, moods and emotions, how to be empathetic. We're not taught these things. And so now all of those are needed in order to bond like this. Most of the people who come into my practice, the couple, they find that their bond was like this. Mm. It was very, very weak. They stopped bonding early. And this is what really needed. And so now not only do I need to work with men to help them manage their addiction, I also have to work with them to help them learn how to emotionally connect. And that's actually going to be the third book that I'm writing right now. It's going even deeper. It's the need for going beyond addiction, Mm. the addictive behavior. And because we have to go beyond that, because if we don't, and I'm just learning how to manage the behavior. Uh, okay, and you're going to struggle constantly. Yeah, you need that emotional connection. Yeah, I, I would agree 100. percent I think there's. It's almost like, um, at least within myself, I felt like there was a, a deficiency or a defect in a defective aspect to my capacity to be with intimacy to be with intimacy with others, to be with intimacy with myself. Um, I mean, there was just mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of avoidance. <laughs> and and then, you know, porn and, and sex and, you know, drugs and whatnot became an outlet for like faux intimacy, you know, sort of pretend intimacy. Yes. It would give this illusion that, oh, I'm connected, right? And I think that's why Correct. for a lot of men, um, porn is is that easy access point. Um, because it gives this illusion of feeling connected, right? The neurons in the brain can't tell the difference. You know, when when you're masturbating to somebody on a screen, they can't tell the difference in your mind between that and and almost real life sex. And so the mm-hmm. the dopamine release and what happens neurochemically in the brain is almost identical. Right. It's the complete opposite of what's going on. We're thinking that there's a connection, but actually there's nothing but isolation. Right. That's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's in many ways, it's, it's re-triggering the wound. Well, I think, um, 
This is wonderful. I think, you know, in, in honor of your of your time and and just this conversation, we're going to wrap up here. Um, this is phenomenal. Anything else that you just want to let the listeners know about in terms of the, the content of what we talked about today? Yeah. Yeah. First, first and foremost, one, that this process of the inner child recovery, um, it goes across all addictions and all addictive behaviors. Okay. We're not talking about sexual and pornography, although that what I specialize, but I mean, if you have an an internet addiction, if you if you're doing way too much in the way of video game, you know, if food is a problem, you can apply these techniques to that to help you to um, to get to the source of what is really that void within you. And I would just encourage you to go and seek help, you know, from your qualified professionals who know what they're they're doing and dealing with the inner child. Um, I, if you go to my website, uh, innerchild-sexaddiction.com, you can find a list of their and clinicians, of various clinicians who are available. They've been trained in the process of how to do this and they'll be able to help you. But I'll just say, you know what? You don't have to be stuck. You you can make changes in your life moving forward. Mm. Yeah, well said. Well said. Well thank you so much, Dr. Caparucci, for joining me and for everyone that's out there, certainly check out his work. Um, you can check out the book Going Deeper. We'll have the links for that in the show notes and we'll have the links to his website in the show notes as well. Uh, and don't forget to share this episode with somebody that you know is going to benefit from it. Maybe there's someone in your life that could benefit from listening to this conversation uh, or somebody that could better understand something that maybe you are going through or, or their partner is going through. So thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a, a review on whatever platform you're on. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Mm-hmm.